to the seventh podcast in our series, Bridging the Gaps, produced by FASTA and EHFF, the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Sean O'Conline. Tafolteroiv Agzan Saura Idridim Kunderi. And I'm Caroline White. This episode will focus on some of the obstacles that exist at the moment to creating an economy that functions adequately for everyone in our society, including migrants and people of colour. And we'll also look at some possible ways forward. Irish listeners to this podcast will no doubt already have heard of direct provision. For non-Irish listeners, direct provision is the Irish system of asylum seeker accommodation while they wait for a response to their applications for asylum. Criticisms of direct provision include the very poor quality of some of the accommodation provided, the lack of kitchen facilities and inappropriate food served in some centres. Asylum seekers also have very limited options in seeking paid employment. As of August 2020, the new Irish government has promised to end the direct provision system and a white paper on the subject is due to be published by the end of this year. Direct provision is one of the topics discussed in this month's podcast, along with a range of other subjects including cultural competence, enforced absence, the relationship between power and knowledge production, the problematic palliative orientation of social work, and the potential for a Global South philosophy of collectivism to help us all with the crises that we're facing. We're very pleased to have Nadia Hansen as our guest interviewer. Nadia has been interning for FASTA over the past three months. She's majoring in human rights and social justice at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada, and is herself a child of migrants, her parents having moved to Canada from Ghana in the 1990s. Nadia will be interviewing Dr. Washington Marovat Sanga, who is originally from Zimbabwe and spent some years in the US before moving to Ireland, where he recently completed a PhD in social work. So now let's go over to Nadia and Washington. First, I want to start by thanking Washington for joining us here today. It's so exciting to have the chance to speak with someone who's so experienced and living in Ireland as well as a person of color. I guess I wanted to ask you, Washington, about your academic background, where you've studied and how it was like navigating those processes. I initially trained just to through an apprenticeship after high school. Zimbabwe being a former English colony, you had the same educational systems as you would find in the UK. At my time, most of what you did was determined by the market. That all changed when I moved to the US. So most of my existence in America was trying to survive, get the job. And that's when the culture shock came in because I was coming from a country, once you get in a job, you get out when you're 65. You are not used to the precariousness of losing a job at the drop of a hat. And it was the first time that I got to know that being part of a union in the workplace was something frowned upon. So I came to grips with the idea that I was now in America, very capitalist and very little protection. But just getting back to the education, the major difference was there were so many opportunities to go to college and different modes of accessing education. There was a lot of flexibility. And as a mature student, the difference with where I was coming from was they took into account your life experiences for whatever you wanted to do. And 
even when I moved away from engineering, going on to work in the social service sector, I started with the homeless situation and I got hired accidentally. I had gone there to pick up somebody. Then they said, can you help us? There was some argument going on and I managed to join in and calm down the situation. Then the manager said, oh, you seem to have people skills. Would you like to work for us? So I got there informally and started working with the homeless people, but there was no push for me to get a formal qualification. Despite that, I was called a caseworker, but that all changed when I moved to Ireland. I came in and tried to go back into my old trade job, but I soon realized it wasn't not only in demand, but was very insecure. And a lot of companies in that were moving to cheaper locations like Poland or China. People were saying, oh, you remember your other job? with the homeless and people with intellectual disability. Here is the main thing. So I applied for a job with a voluntary organization. I managed to get in and for say, oh, if you only got a third level qualification, you'd be earning a lot, do social studies or social care. So I started doing a certificate in youth and community development at GMIT, Castle Bar in the U.S. State-level education is so expensive. It's a big business for the colleges, and it's almost sometimes impossible to pay your way, work, and have a family. But again, in Ireland, that was different because I could work and afford to pay for college. I was working full-time and studying part-time. Then for the honors degree, it was a back-to-education system where you can study full-time and allowed to work at the same time. So I took advantage for that because it was only nine months, but it was pretty tough because I remember then I'd gone to work for a part-time job in a hospital in Galway and I'd finished the shift at seven in the morning and been classed by nine o'clock after driving for one hour. And sometimes the way I think last days were, sometimes I'll be dozing off in class and people would notice. But I managed to finish the course, ended up being very good, working with people with challenging behaviors. I then left and went into Dublin, Kildare, worked for different social care organizations. Then after a while, I remember taking, okay, it's all fine doing this kind of work. You can't be doing this in your old age. You do sleepovers, you're driving around. Why can't you find a job where you work nine to five, where you don't work odd hours, changing diapers throughout the night and all so forth. So that's when social work was suggested. But I was told this is Ireland. The nearest place to do a social work would be Galway, the master's program. And so I did apply. When I got to the interview, the most tricky question was, look, this is social work. You're going to work with all kinds of people. You might even be racially abused. I said, oh, don't worry about that. I have lots of experience in all that. But I also told them why I was coming to NYG was their program was putting so much emphasis on social justice and human rights. I said, if you don't take me on, what it means is you have missed an opportunity to show people that you don't just talk about diversity, you actually practice it by having somebody like me on the course. Because up to then, I believe there were no black students on the course. And with a bit of sense of humor throughout the interview, I got on the course so my dissertation was based on the challenges and opportunities for social workers who work with people from different cultural backgrounds. Because during my placement, the internship in Dublin 15, I had seen a lot of what I call critical incidences where white Irish social workers were having challenges understanding their clients who were from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. There was the issue of what commonly referred to as cultural competence. How do you work with somebody who's different from you? How do you get to understand what they're saying? 
And then I realized that, oh, but in the US, you know what? They used to have a cultural competency assessment tools. All these countries with long histories of immigration have devised ways of getting by, either in terms of cultural guides or having um, cultural competent models of questionnaires or other materials that would help the white social worker understand, or even assessment tool called the culture gram, where you need to know the country the person is coming from, how long they've been in the country, language spoken at home, uh, any traumatic experiences, their religion, family holidays, and so forth. Because we were getting situations where you'll be called to a school, the school head is saying, we got a problem. We got a, a girl from a Muslim family who's refusing to take part in sport, and she's referring us to her family. Can you go find out? Only to get there and the parents tell you, oh no, the only reason they're not participating in physical activity is that if they do that, they might faint because they're fasting. It's Ramadan, you know. <laughs> then you get to understand, oh. <laughs> so in that way, the white social workers would learn something, but sometimes the damage is already done. Or even you had instances where different cultural expressions like sustained eye contact the eye social workers would think that if you're not looking them up in the eye, you're lying. Whereas these, some of these black clients were coming from a culture where if you look at people of authority in the eye, I mean, if you maintain sustained eye contact with somebody in authority, it would be considered confrontational in their culture. So there were all these cultural differences that looked like small things, but they were impacting negatively on the therapeutic relationship between the white social workers predominantly and the black client. So I found myself playing the role of a cultural mediator, and I incorporated all these insights in my MA dissertation. The findings generated so much interest. Uh, so I was encouraged to do a PhD and look at the issue in more in-depth and more academic, robust way. I never thought of doing a PhD. I was more interested in getting on with the job of social work. But again, the agencies and the social work tradition, practice and education seems to be set in a dominant Eurocentric worldview. There was no room for accommodating other cultural perspectives from the ethnic minorities. So I saw that by doing a PhD might help to articulate and maybe address this gap then when I did research further, to my amazement, I discovered that actually the way social work was founded, was founded in England at the time of the Industrial Revolution to address issues of people falling through the cracks. So social work's job really was to make sure people were fit for work. Those who fell through the crack would be controlled and put to work again. So social work came into being to play a role what I would call palliative care for people suffering the excesses of capitalism. So social work in its inception was tied to capitalism in that it had to mop up those people damaged by loss of jobs and the resulting poverty. But social work was merely, even up to now, concerned with managing people in their poverty. But social work could not radically challenge the policies that were causing the poverty. And when you look at social workers, they struggle with that. On one hand, they're state agents, they're agents of the state. On the other hand, their definitions and value base is saying they're there to promote equality, diversity, and all this egalitarian talk. But you find they have a dilemma enforcing government regulations, say in child protection, and at the same time being seen as progressive, helpful people. So that's why you see most people, when you talk to them about a social work, first thing they think of 
oh, they take children away. Nobody has ever thought of a social worker actually helping them. There were instances in the history of social work, there was radical social work. They teach equality, they teach diversity, but there's an education to practice gap. My research was telling me it's not the problem of individual social workers, really, but the profession itself, it's knowledge base, it's value base. When you look at it, it originated in England and was exported to the colonies as part of the imperial project, the colonial project. In Canada, the US, Australia, you had social workers being at the forefront of taking native children to civilize them and indoctrinate them with white thought, not even pausing to think that these natives had been bringing up their children for centuries before the white people got to these lands. So there was this ethnocentric understanding underpinning social work historically in propagating what I would refer to as the cultural, Eurocentric cultural hegemony as a normative marker, a normative way. I would argue that the state uses social workers to feed us a false narrative that it's possible for everyone to become successful based on like a neoliberal kind of notion. And I wanted to ask, what are the communities of people that you're working with the most? Is it usually minority communities, like racialized folk that are your clients mostly? I work with all kinds of clients, but you'd find that there was a difference in how you are received. With the racialized minorities, they'd be so happy to see that there's somebody who looks like them who's actually sitting on the other side yeah. of the desk. And you see how they open up. And the same way I see when I go to lecture in a class where there are only three minority or black students. And I remember being told by some of the lecturers how they're usually very quiet and they keep to themselves. They rarely put up their hand. But that day when you came in, they were all lively. And they would come to me after the class and say, that was really because I'll be talking about something they can identify with, how indigenous and minority cultures have been silenced historically, what I call enforced absences from the canon, from intellectual space, and so forth. So most of my teaching and uh, decolonizing the curricula, it's about bringing in theories such as critical race theory, Afrocentricity, other epistemologies and ontologies like Ubuntu that have always been there, but have always been sidelined as part of the historical colonialism. Politics of knowledge production, knowledge dissemination and so forth precedes all the other dominations that become physical, political and so forth. So touching on your last point where you were speaking about what types of knowledges are deemed as valuable and what's useful, especially in the global north, I wanted to talk about cultural oppression and how the systems work to oppress other voices and try to deem other cultures as abnormal. And especially in your field of work, I would imagine that can become very problematic. How does that manifest into your practical work? What is important is who controls the narrative. We have the media projecting one type of race as problematic and you suppress the good things that they do and you only project the negative. Gradually it becomes embedded in other people's psyche. We always see in the movies the, the gangsters, the, the robbers or the, the, the bad guys sort of. I think following the Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd events, issues of racism, issues of equality and diversity have taken a new dimension. Right now, this is an opportunity to embed and have real change. People are saying, what is it that we need to do? My research was telling me that 
when we are born, we're just like a clean slate. But it's the socializations that we go through. So if you grow up being told that you're superior to black people or other ethnic minorities, then if your education does not debunk those myths, the primary socialization, then it reinforces them. But what has been happening in the Western world is you had primary socializations from history where there was inherited assumptions about the superiority of the white race and it's been passed on to the next generation without being critically challenged. And sometimes it's because certain white people had never had the opportunity of interacting with black people. Then you find even when you become a social worker and you meet other people, you're so ill-equipped to relate on an equal basis, never mind what they're teaching you. So at the most primary level, the change can begin there. So people are saying there is hope that children growing up here playing together and whatnot, they'll go on. Then the next thing, if the education system itself revamped to have critical insights, like what's beginning to happen in other places, where the truth of the whole racial thing is told, that there's no scientific basis for racial superiority or racial inferiority, it's all made up. But the understanding is that at some point in our history, it was important for those who wanted to colonize other people to say they're not fully human. So when I colonize or enslave them, I'm not enslaving another human. We are saying this is the 21st century. We know what has happened in history. And can we relook at everything and tell each other the real truth? Because we have seen people from all colors, from all races and ethnicities, excelling in different fields in life. I think the perception we get when we were in Africa about the United States and Europe in general, life was well and good. But then when I moved to stay there, it was a different thing altogether. When you go to work, live and stay there, then you begin to see all this homelessness, the poverty, people who can't afford medical health care. But they're in a country that's supposed to be the richest country in the world. So slowly, slowly, it opened my eyes. Then you come to Europe, you also see a replica of that. But most of these countries have agencies, NGOs working in Africa. So you begin to think of that thing about charity begins at home and all that. Bouncing off of that, I've seen that happening in real time, like with my own family, because my background, we're Ghanaian. I was born in Canada, but the rest of my family, my parents, they were all born over there and came to Canada in the mid-90s. And it's just a complete lifestyle change, a complete culture switch. And it can be so difficult to navigate. And then when you have family pressures from back home, expecting family to support you because you've moved to what the media has portrayed as this paradise, you know? But in reality, it's just a completely different kind of struggle now. The other issue I ought to have addressed is the virulent form of capitalism, the new neoliberalism. Because back in Africa, the way we grew was that everything is interconnected. The environment, the moon, the stars, the cosmos, the birds, the animals, and everything is connected to each other. So even when we went hunting, we could only hunt so much and leave the other things in the forest. You could not needlessly kill things that you did not want to eat. But when we moved to play in America, there was not a connectedness. The whole world was seen as a physical matter to be exploited. If you go there, cut as many wood as well. If you can go there and get some deer, shoot as many as you can. And if you can do it for profit. Then one other issue that came was the idea of pollution. Before I moved to these countries, I looked in awe at the, how industrialized they are. 
big tall buildings, big factories. But I soon realized when I was in Ohio that if I went fishing, if I caught a fish, they would say, oh, no, 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 you can't eat that fish. It's full of mercury. Because you see, some of these companies throw their waste into the river and it pollutes, including the fish. So if you eat the fish, you might end up getting mercury poisoned. This is something that would never happen if I were in Africa. There's still a lot of natural habitat. One very large problem in Western society is that with all these different issues, like with social inequalities and issues surrounding environment and climate change, all of these issues, they try to isolate all of them and try to come up with solutions that will specifically combat any given issue. Whereas, if anything, everything is very connected and that's the kind of theme that I've been trying to address with my research with FASTA, just having this focus on intersectionality and and when you see like policy leaders trying to come up with sustainable solutions and things like that, I feel like a big thing that's missing is that we don't have this mindset of looking at everything together and trying to see how one aspect influences another when we could simply find these solutions in different kinds of cultures, like you were saying, in a lot of different African philosophies. With hunting, everything has to be done in a certain way so that you're not disturbing the other systems. And I think that's a perspective that Western countries need to start adapting to as well. But in order to do that, we need to stop erasing these other cultures, lifestyle practices that are deemed abnormal especially past COVID, because when we look at the whole pandemic, it's definitely exaggerated every single social problem that we have. If you look at the third world or African philosophies of collectivism versus the Eurocentric model of individualism, that's the major difference where individualism is valued more in the Euro-Western world than collectivism. The Africans are more of a collectivist culture, they lead a communal life and so forth. Within, for example, the Ubuntu philosophy is saying the welfare of an individual is relative to the welfare of the group. That was clashing with the Eurocentric worldview in that an individual is an individual. And I remember as a social worker working with white Irish people, and I was saying, oh, you're coming to me with the most basic things that even your family can help you with. Why didn't you ask your brother or sister? Most of the time, the response I'd get was, oh, they're minding their own business. Yet, in, within the African culture, your first protocol is your immediate family members, then the extended family, and so forth. But here, actions of an individual end up having repercussions on the collective. So the understanding in Ubuntu is that I am because we are. An individual is only an individual because of the community they belong to. So just look at this COVID-19 thing. You let an individual exercise their individual freedom irresponsibly, then they end up affecting the entire community. Whereas if we took that responsibility for each individual and looked after each other, as in the Ubuntu philosophy, in times like this, that's where that would be very helpful. So this is just an example I could give about how if we were to have a better world, why it's worth listening to what other cultures have to offer from their own. But again, going just back to my home discipline of social work, they have done that a little in some ways, but it's not been acknowledged. For example, they borrowed from the Maori this family group conferencing idea. It's a philosophy that the Maori of New Zealand the Aboriginal people, say, if you're going to solve a problem in a community, 
if it involves children or whoever, all those people need to be present when you're looking for the solutions. But there was this understanding in some Western cultures where the children don't need to be here. We can talk about them and decide for them. Whereas in those cultures, they were saying, if children are a problem, they need to be on the table and we can ask them, why are they being a problem? Or why do they think they're not being a problem? So in later years, this model was then adopted by social workers. Secondly, you have the restorative justice concept being used in probation services. You know, within the African ontology, imprisonment traditionally was not there. If people misbehaved, it was up to the community. The understanding was that the crime has been committed in the community against the community. So both the offender and the victim will be brought to a negotiating table where if there were any reparations, let's say you beat up somebody and you broke their hand so they can't go on to their field and farm for the children to eat, you'd have to take their place and do that on their behalf. And if there were any reparations to be paid, they would be paid to the victim, not the state. Because of that, you'd not have uh, this idea of the prisons are full and people go to prison, they come out, they've not been properly rehabilitated, they go and commit more crime. Now in probation services, they're starting off with the minor crimes where the victim and the offender are brought to a negotiating table and uh, all that process is rolled out. But again, this is a concept borrowed from Africa. These are just two examples to show you what we can all benefit if we look at what other cultures are offering in terms of finding solutions to problems. But even when that happens, there is a denial. It's like some kind of shame to not want to acknowledge that we got this concept from Africa because there's this thing that, oh, we've always said these people have nothing to offer. But now if we go on and say we're using their way of doing things, it doesn't look good. So there is an element of that. With the work that I've been doing, I've been doing a lot of research around direct provision and migration and refugee processes in Ireland. And just taking a look at how the effect of the systems trickle down to people's real life experiences. And I think that's an aspect that a lot of people tend to forget that these systems play a really important role in our lives. If anything, they control our lives and they police how we're able to move, how we're able to go about our everyday activities. As long as you have something like direct provision, it suggests that there's a selective application of the equality laws or the human rights approach. And that then clouds all the other positive things that might be happening. And the direct provision system itself, uh, the way it's designed is supposed to be a deterrent kind of. This is where maybe Ireland can copy from the U.S. In the U.S., they had a system when somebody comes to claim asylum, the first thing they do is they give them unrestricted right to work for two years. Then they say, we'll talk to you after two years. After two years, all they have to do is to look at the whether the PPS number or the record of the person for the last two years. Did they get arrested? Did they commit a crime? Or how much money they work? What have they done? So in most cases, after two years, somebody has been given the right to work, knowing fully that after two years, they're going to be held to account. What have you done with the two years we gave you? You find that the state would not have to keep people in direct provision in, in situations of enforced idleness, where people end up with mental health and all those related problems from direct provision. What would your hopes be in Ireland? We're somewhere in the middle. We often talk about being between Berlin and Boston. That was <laughs> oh, I have heard that one too. 
I think Ireland has a real opportunity not to wait and see what other people are doing. They could actually do better than the UK and even the US. There's something useful about Ireland when it comes to these issues of equality and diversity. Using their own experience, Ireland is uniquely placed to actually do proper integration as a people who also wants experience what it is to have other people rule over you. And for most of the Irish people I've come across outside and inside Ireland, on the whole, they're very nice. But sometimes there is this fear, if all these people keep coming in through migration, we might end up being a minority in our own country. So those are genuine fears. The immigrants might end up being the dominant people and we end up like the Maoris being a minority in our own country. But I said, look, if you are treating people well, you would not even worry, even if the tables tend that you are a minority, because people would remember how you treated them well. It's something I think going to the future island has to prepare itself for. It's a reality that's going to be there, that's coming. But to say, how can we educate each other and actually benefit from the diversity that immigration has brought to Ireland? That was Dr. Washington Marovatsanga a social worker originally from Zimbabwe and based in Dundalk in Ireland, being interviewed by FASTA intern Nadia Hansen, who is a student of human rights and social justice in Carleton University in Canada. If you found this podcast interesting, please check out the others in our series, Bridging the Gaps and Beyond the Obvious, and help us to promote them by liking or sharing them on social media. Many thanks to Nadia Hansen and Dr. Washington Marovat-Sanga for their interview. And thanks also to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp.